Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe, a reporter here in our London offices, and each week we take a look at a big story from the US and what it means for the rest of the world. On Saturday, Imam Maulana Akonji and his assistant Thara Udin were shot and killed as they walked through Queens, New York, after prayers. A man named Oscar Morel has been arrested as a suspect in the killings, though police say they have not yet established a motive for the attack. Many in New York's Muslim community say they believe the shootings were a hate crime. In a speech responding to the incident, New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio acknowledged the Islamophobia that the community faces. There are voices all over this country who are spewing hate, trying to create division, trying to turn one American against another. His comment doesn't just apply to the US. In Europe, Muslims are being subjected to mounting Islamophobia, particularly in the wake of terrorist attacks carried out by people allied with Islamic State, ISIS. Why is Islamophobia on the rise in the US and Europe, and how do we combat it? Joining me to discuss this are Hussein Kazvani, a consultant at Theos, a religion and public affairs think tank, and Baroness Shaista Ahmed Sheehan, a Liberal Democrat member of the House of Lords, particularly interested in the issue of immigration. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. So just to begin, um, on a very basic level, why do we think Islamophobia is on the rise in the US? Is it on the rise? Is it just something that's getting more attention? To my mind, it's not surprising that Islamophobia is on the rise. When you listen to the rhetoric, the xenophobic and the hate-filled rhetoric that is coming out from people who purport to want to lead the American nation, I think it is legitimizing those racist feelings uh, within some of the population and legitimizing their thoughts into actions. So I'm not surprised that we are seeing a rise in Islamophobia. And when you're saying some people who purport to want to lead the US, who are you talking about? I'm talking, of course, about Donald Trump and his cohort of people who who are indiscriminate in the language that they use. And I'd like to come on in a minute to talk a bit about the role that political rhetoric plays here. But just to begin, just to bring in Hussein uh, on that very simple first question of why do we think there has been a rise of Islamophobia? Why is this such a problem at the moment? I, I don't think there's necessarily been a huge rise in incidents, though that would kind of depend on where you're looking at. Obviously, in America, in relation to the current presidential election and tensions being very, very high, the amount of 
verbal cases, the amount of physical cases, is likely to increase. And there's various reasons for that. But I would actually say Islamophobia generally, this has been an ongoing incident for the past decade, if not longer. It's been a very, it's been very difficult, like articulating that. And I think we've reached a point now where we can recognise and it's really sad to kind of say that, but we can recognise anti-Muslim abuse, partially because of like Muslim groups who have made it their job to make it more visible, partially because we now have social media platforms which kind of bring to our attention these cases. I kind of wonder in a pre-Twitter age how much attention this shooting in New York would have got compared to now. And also younger Muslims kind of being trying to be more confident about their identities. As a young Muslim myself growing up in this particular very strange decade. The type of confidence that Muslims show now in terms of their identities, mainly because they have to do it, has been so different compared to like even five years ago. So it's worth seeing all of that in context. Something that struck me about the the, the killing that we began talking about this shooting in Queens is that various Muslim groups in New York have been pushing very hard for it to be classified as a hate crime as it stands at the time of recording. The authorities say they don't yet have enough evidence to call it that. Whether it ends up being called one or not, it it sort of strikes me that there's a point to be made here about how we describe these things. If this had been a Muslim person who attacked a Christian cleric, might we have immediately called it terrorism? Do the authorities need to show that they're sort of on top of, of, of anti-Muslim violence, is that part of what this debate about the world hate crime is in, in America and in, in New York? Yeah, definitely. One of the, you know, whenever these types of incidents happen, one of the big complaints from Muslims, not just in America, but like all around the world, is why isn't this being treated in the same way as if it would be if it was reversed? We're very, we're not as reluctant to kind of say things about terrorist attacks if we know that a Muslim's involved. When you look at some of the gun-related violence statistics in America, I think in 2015 there were over mm. 53,000 yeah. gun-related incidences in America and thirteen over 13,000 people were murdered through gunfire. And I think only about three were perpetrated by Muslims. Yeah. Now, that is a figure that really needs greater publicity. You know, those that does not speak to the balance that the media give to the stories about Muslims uh, perpetrating gun crime. If we could put that figure on a billboard, that would be, that would go to some way towards rectifying, I think, some of the narrative. And just to return to Donald Trump, um, how do you think we got to the point where saying Islamophobic things was acceptable within the political mainstream? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, these aren't Trump ideas. If we look back at 2012, for example, there were Republicans, high-level Republicans, that were saying very, very similar things to Trump in terms of we need more vetting of immigrants, we need more vetting of people coming into the country, we need to monitor mosques was another story that I remember happening in 2012. You know, at the height of the Arab Spring and all these terrorist groups that were kind of, well, now terrorist groups that were spinning out of that. Perhaps people weren't paying as much attention to that. Perhaps it wasn't as potent, like we didn't have... You know, ISIS technically existed, but it didn't really exist in the form that it did now. The refugee crisis wasn't taking place. So a lot of things have happened during that time. But the rhetoric has still taken place. These issues haven't gone away. The real question is, like, how has it gone so, so mainstream? And part of that is the media. The part of it is, like, the expansion of media and alternate media sites that are willing to kind of give readers what they want. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to name any of them. Uh, <laughs> um, have a go. We'll, we'll, um, we'll so, cut it you know, if it ends up being like Yeah, <laughs> so, you know... 
surprisingly Fox like you news know has, has yeah Fox be... News but also like Breitbart Infowars like Infowars has been around for ages and I remember lots of weird internet people <laughs> like I knew on Infowars and now all of a sudden it's become this thing that's acceptable in the mainstream and they have their own platform at VRNC in some very strange capacity you know and all the you know all this type of rhetoric has slowly become mainstream and no one's really paid attention to it until now. So we're in this situation where you've got mainstream news reporters who on the one hand are being told you're just telling liberal lies. But there are newsrooms kind of thinking, well, what, you know, what do we do about these organisations who are getting more traction and getting a lot of attention? So if Trump was to come to power, how would Muslims in the US respond, do you think? If he actually put into practice the things he says he's going to do, what would be the impact? I don't think like he would really practically be able to. I mean, you know, this is like a really ridiculous thing to kind of even been thinking about. You know, if you talk, if you think about the giant war, um, you know, and he's compared, the, yeah, the big yeah, war, the, 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 the big war, to keep but particularly there's ban yeah. on Muslims entering the U.S. being being relevant. Well, I think here. there's even like high high level Republicans who have said this is technically unconstitutional or like it's unworkable. And you can kind of, you know, he's transitioned from complete bans to like extreme vetting and God knows what he's going to be saying in the next few months. It's not the proposals that he's making. There's a part of me that thinks that this is a cynical play by Donald Trump and actually he knows just like every presidential candidate who's had to break promises, he can be allowed to do the same thing. But it's more of a culture that he's cultivating because there are some of his supporters that genuinely think, you know, this guy is going to do that. You know, this guy really sticks up for us. And some of those voters genuinely do think that Muslims are the problem and that by, you know, all this extreme betting or even keeping them out of the country, things are going to be better. If that doesn't work out, God knows what these voters are going to do. Mm. Yeah, I, I just think it's uh, so important that Democrats and Republicans come together and have a robust defence against these plans. Um, what Trump is giving voice to is just uh, totally unacceptable. Um, in terms of the, the question about how do we counter um, the narrative um, and if Trump gets elected, I think we really need to put out some good Muslim stories. I mean, too often the uh, narrative around Muslims is negative. Um, the Democratic Convention, when the Khan family stood up and talked about the huge sacrifice that they had made and their son's life uh, was given in service of America. And um, those are the kind of stories that we need to publicize more. And I'm sure that there are a great deal more stories like that where um, we raise awareness of what's good uh, and what good Muslims have done for America and, and how they've benefited the economy as well, actually. And, and how do you think that would work? I mean, is that the responsibility of uh, Muslim organisations in the US? I mean, obviously, it's the responsibility of the media to report these things. Yeah. But in terms of finding these people, as you say, the speech given at the Democratic Convention by the parents of a Muslim veteran was very inspiring. Who's, whose responsibility is it to find these kinds of people and these kinds of stories about, you know, Muslims who've... who've done great things for their country? Um, I was looking through the CARE website. Uh, CARE is the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And uh, I came across an item there that really struck me. And it was Assembly Member Bill Quirk and his very introduction of a very recent resolution, I think is uh, House Resolution 59, asking August to become the month for Muslim awareness, to raise Muslim awareness and appreciation. That went through 
quite easily, I think. And I think that is the sort of initiative that we need. We, may be, we, we need it on a statewide level and we need it on a national level. Um, so almost like a, sort of a similar project to, say, Black History Month or... Yes, and I think, you know, the Muslim community itself needs to really step up to say, look, they need to get onto the front foot to counter some of the uh, the stories of radicalization, etc., that are always there. And given a lot of airtime, they need to step up and say, look, this is what we're doing in this community here. This is the difference that we've made here. These are the numbers of Muslim young men who are serving in the forces and defending our fundamental mm. freedoms and our liberties. And we have to talk about values and principles, and we have to relate those values and principles to the Quran. Hussein looks as if he's sort of leaping yeah. up and down in his chair. Yeah, he does. Right, to um, I mean, I this, this idea of a Muslim, uh, Muslim Awareness Month, was it? Yeah. Where, how does that strike you? So there's some merits to it. I think, like, so CARE do a really good job at, like, highlighting these types of stories. Their social media is really good. They're a lot better established than most Muslim outreach organisations in Britain and in Europe. But they're still facing the same problem. I think in the case of the family of the Muslim veteran, that was a really big deal, not because they were, you know, not because like it kind of showed old oh, Muslims do really good things for America, but it kind of clashed these two images together, which is of the anti-American Muslim stereotype versus the veteran who is unconditionally respected in the US. And no one really knew how to react to that. And that goes for Muslims as well, because when I when I was watching this speech and talking to Muslims over here, some of them were saying, well, you know, it's all well and good that he's taken Donald Trump down a peg or two, but he fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. He fought against other Muslims. You know, so how do we respond to that? And it kind of goes, say that like, well, not all Muslims are the same. And lots of them think very different things. And this is definitely like much more of the case in America, where cultures are much more varied than like I would say over here. Of course, I mean, it's very difficult to kind of organize. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nice collective action in that way in part because we don't want to go down the road of collective responsibility too much um, and that way you kind of give 
headway to far-right narratives. So you think it could almost be dangerous it for be, Americans yeah. to have an idea of, of Muslims as a, as a people no, who all work together? I, I think there is that risk. I do think there Why is that risk. Why do you think that? I think that it's just, it's just as dangerous to kind of present Muslims like, as this one monolithic block, whether it's in no, no, no. a way that's inherently negative... There are good Muslims and there are bad Muslims. What I'm also saying is that I think the perpetrators of uh, the terrorism and the jihadists don't mm. understand Islam anyway. So just it, to call them Muslim, to me, is yeah. offensive, yeah. actually. It's not what the Quran says. Mm. And what I would say with you uh, to you is that if there are Muslims who believe that, then that is something that we need to tackle because the Quran says if you're living in another country, in mm. a non-Muslim country, that you have to live by the rules, by the laws of that country. Yeah, sure. And you have to respect And that. do you think that in America, if... Um, because presumably many Muslims feel similarly in America about the values of democracy and liberty and so on, having people stand up and assert that regularly in, in a public platform, having Muslims say that would be helpful, do you think? Yes, I do. I do think. And I, Muslims all do, when whenever there is one of these atrocities, they will stand up and say, this act was not done in the name of Islam. This, you know, the, the, anyone saying that they are a Muslim and who can kill innocent civilians, men, women and children, they are not Muslims. It's not done in my name. And I think they need to keep on repeating that, not just condemn the crime and the heinous nature of these terrorist acts, but to say it is not done in my name. I am a Muslim. I do not recognize this as a Muslim act. But they do that already, needs, right? They do. Yeah. But we, we have to keep on repeating it because mm. that's the media narrative that we have to try and counter. I don't think the media gives enough airtime to the Muslims who are trying to counter the terrorism rhetoric that, and radicalization. We need to speak, actually, of the fear that we feel uh, about the radicalization of Muslims. The, the other uh, story I'd like to draw... Um, some attention to is um, we've we've talked here a lot about Donald Trump in America and about the things that he says uh, he would do if he were president um, in terms of Muslims, this this, this Muslim ban and so on. Um, in Europe, there are some places where quite targeted sort of, well, you might call them anti-Muslim policies, some people would call them secularist policies, are already in place. One that's been making the headlines recently is various French beaches, including in Cannes and elsewhere, have banned um, the burkini, the kind of the Muslim, uh, well, worn by some Muslims, um, swimwear. By some Muslims and Nigella Lawson. And Nigella Lawson, yes, <laughs> as we all remember. The, the, yeah. Yes, that was a, yeah. a memorable set of paparazzi <laughs> photos there. When we look at policies like that, do you think that the justification of these things as defending sort of liberal, secularist, atheist values, as it were, uh, is, is, is fair? Or do you think that these just end up targeting and scapegoating Muslims? I think the ban is ludicrous. It really is, you know. And for a country like France, founded on liberty, egality, fraternity, for them to place in jeopardy their own values and principles as a knee-jerk reaction to combating the terrorism that we've seen um, is counterproductive. They are letting the terrorist win, and um, I think it's crazy. I'd really like the feminists, really, to raise their voices in this debate because mm. asking women to take off their clothes is just... It, to me, we're, we're at a stage of the debate that's become 
ludicrous. It really is. Yeah, I mean, I would echo the sentiment very strongly that this is something that empowers extremist groups and it empowers terrorist groups. It effectively says to disenfranchise Muslims in France, there are a lot of them, this country does not want you and it does not accept your values. And we can say all you want about like secularism and you know separating religion from the state, but actually it's not that case at all. And again, women kind of bear the brunt of this most of the time. So in this case, attacking what they wear and kind of saying what you wear is like the definition of your identity, pitting one identity against another, that's a very peculiar form of secularism. Another thing as well, like in relation to the bikini ban is also the increasing number of schools that are kind of giving pork or nothing lunches. So they're telling Muslim kids, you either eat what's on your plate or you don't eat at all. So young children are like bearing the brunt of this very ideological policy, which I wouldn't say is even combating terrorism, but it's more like France going through an identity crisis and French people kind of wondering, well, where do we stand in relation to like everything that's happening around us? And this is like a knee-jerk reaction, which never kind of gets the results that you expect. And um, you, you say that it helps uh, terrorist and extremist groups. I yeah. mean, in what particular way do you think it? It kind of feeds the ideology. So I don't know whether this happened in relation to the bikini ban, but I do know that like in ISIS propaganda, that I spent like a lot of my early career kind of reading very profusely, the way that they would get recruits is by alienating them even further from their home countries. So when lots of people were going to Syria, they were saying, well, come to Syria where you can learn how to be a true Muslim and we accept you for your Muslim religious values. You know, your home countries don't want you. They don't accept you. They've never accepted you. And they would use examples like this. They would say, so in the French case, it's, you know, not letting you wear hijabs in schools is a sign that they don't want you to practice true Islam. There were several like British cases where they said, well, obviously like the war in Iraq was one, you know, a war on what they called was a war on Muslims. But they also said things like, you know, secular schools was a way of like undermining Islam. There were lots of different examples which were designed specifically to exploit young people. And what European states should have done was combat that propaganda. But again, they came at it too late. Now, in examples like France, they haven't even tried to combat it at all. They're, you know, just feeding this propaganda. Is Europe, um, why is Europe becoming more Islamophobic, do we think? So France is one example we've given. It's, it's been putting in these secularist think, practices. But um, Josh, I think we go back to the beginning. It is leadership. Um, it is words from the mouths of people who we are asking to form the policies to lay down the law of the land and if those people are using words and vilifying immigrants and uh, whole communities, then that has an impact, I think, on the population at large. And in, um, in Britain's EU referendum, there's been a lot of discussion about immigration in general, which was a big issue there. But, but do you think that particularly had an impact in terms of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hatred? Was there, was there that element to it as well? I think so, just in the context of like the refugee crisis. So much of the immigration debate in the Leave campaign. They're all coming, you know, they're coming from Syria, they're coming from Iraq, you know, places which people automatically associate as Muslim countries. In Europe, that conversation is much more public. So, like, you have politicians like Geert Wilders, who kind of explicitly refer this to them... This is the Dutch Freedom Party yeah, leader, yeah. Who explicitly refers to them as, like, Muslims or, like, Mohammedans and stuff, like, these very strange terms. So the automatic assumption is, like, you know, these are 
you know, Islamic terrorists. After the um, incident in Germany, the New Year's incident in Germany, I noticed that language was increasing as well. They didn't refer to them as Syrians. They didn't refer to them as Iraqis or like where they, where they came from. These were the perpetrators of the, the sex attacks on yeah. Cologne you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. Um, they were referred to as Muslims. And that image of like, you know, the Muslim outsider, you know, hunting good German women and by extension, good white European women. That was a particularly powerful image that lots of the far right used. And I do believe that that was very effective. In Britain, I think that conversation was much more subtle but it was still there. Nigel Farage was the person who was most explicit about that, and he was very explicit on TV about that. He's made some very controversial comments regarding those refugees, but the sentiment was still there. And the irony is that, like, despite separating from Europe, the conversation around immigrants was like remarkably very, very similar. So people who voted, or people who really responded to that, responded to it in a way that other Europeans did when it came to the refugee crisis. And so in... in in one way, almost, given all the examples you've just reeled off there, you know, Trump is someone that we often talk about in this context as someone saying these incredible inflammatory things. In some ways, people are saying even more extreme things about Muslims across Europe. Politicians across Europe are saying even more or just as extreme things about Muslims quite yeah, regularly. I, I would agree. Yes, but those, those people are people recognise as being on the far right of the political spectrum. And they say what we expect them to say. It's when you start to have more mainstream, when you have those comments um, associated with the more mainstream politicians that I think we do the real damage. Mm. And so on both sides of the Atlantic then, in, in terms of how we actually combat this, is part of it driving that rhetoric out of the mainstream of politics, ideally getting rid of it overall, but perhaps driving it back to the fringes? Yeah. I don't think you could ever really get rid of it completely. I think those conversations will always exist on the fringes of politics. And you can see that with like, you know, neo-Nazi groups that are now like researching, like the anti-Semitism that existed in the 1930s, like still is there now. Um, But the key to kind of, you know, solving this problem is to push out of the mainstream, like you said. And that means like mainstream politicians do have to be more responsible about what they say, but they also have to be more proactive. There are politicians who will not make these comments, but they also won't call out people who do. And so much of leave success was really, you know, other politicians calling people out far too late. We need to be much more proactive as a community, but also like our elected officials need to be much more proactive in combating this problem. And so if I could maybe push both of you to give sort of one thing you'd like to see done that you think would would work against this problem of rising Islamophobia. So I'm going to say media responsibility. <laughs> so um, was I. Which is kind of like which is a go which is kind of like a go-to thing. But I think across mainstream media platforms, there is a recognition that certain outlets, or just even like a culture as a whole, like has perpetuated this problem with the need for like sensational stories, things that you know sell. So even in like very liberal media circles, the con- you know the platforms that Anjum Chowdhury was given for such a long time, those things that did actually get people to go to Syria, you know, they were really dangerous things on a practical level, but also on an ideological level in terms of how we have that conversation. If there was no Anjum Chowdhury, there would be no English Defence League, and who knows where we could be, where we could have been if that wasn't the case. And I do agree with what you said, Hussein. I do think we need to change that media narrative. But also, I think our policy makers really need to throw in the bin all their strategies to date and start with a clean sheet of paper and go to the communities, the grassroots level, to say how 
What is the issue as you see it? How do we begin to tackle this? How do we keep our young people safe? Because I can tell you Muslim mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters are also very worried about the radicalization of their young people. And we have a proper and full consultation and we address the issues rather than assume that we know what the problem is, which is what we've been doing. We've been trying to impose top-down solutions on these communities, and they are the wrong solutions. So let's start again, and let's really tackle the problem, the real problem and the root causes of the problems. Well, we've got time for there, I think. <laughs> Thank you very much to my guests for coming in. Thank you to everyone at home for listening. You can find us every Thursday on SoundCloud and iTunes, or if you can't wait that long, you can pick up a copy of Newsweek Europe or go to newsweek.com. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.